Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, explore human creativity and invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, a vital ingredient in the solutions to all of our problems, so often misunderstood. Little by little, I'm building an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by founding sponsor and B Corp, Illustration X. Take a look at their stunning range of illustrators and animators now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, it's by Dirty Freud, who you can listen to on Spotify and all good music streaming services. Today I'm joined by Idler founder and editor Tom Hodgkinson. Tom founded Idler magazine in 1993 and has preached an idle way of life. And that's not about laziness or slacking. Well, there is a little bit of that, but it's mainly about fulfillment, about creativity, about belonging and all those other beautiful things that we seem to forget about in our thousand mile an hour lives. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Condition Podcast. How are you doing? Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you're feeling creative. I hope you're feeling rested and energised. And I reckon that you're not. <laughs> I know that feeling too well. I get rest. I don't have to work. I watch some films. I eat some food. I have some drinks. I talk to people over Christmas. And I come back absolutely knackered. Every year, guaranteed. I'm not going to lie, I'm sat here today and I'm biting my nails, I'm fretting about the million things it feels like I've got to do. Um, I am looking out of the window and terrified at the weather because of the climate crisis and the ongoing deluge outside, reports of tornadoes and earthquakes around the world and, you know, war's still raging and oh, we had this conversation many times last year on this show particularly in the episode 199 with Stefan Sagmeister on his book, Now is Better. And I made great strides last year. I felt much better. I felt more fulfilled. I managed to get control of my mind in the main, not all of the time. I'm not going to lie, there's still lows, there's still dips, and I think there always will be. I'm highly sensitive. Again, go back to 200, episode 200 of the show, and listen to my conversation with Jen Graneman an expert in introversion and sensitivity uh, and highly sensitive people. And you'll understand why, um, you know, it's, it's challenging to be highly sensitive because we feel the good things more, we feel the bad things more and all those things impact us and we have to work constantly to manage our minds in order to not, you know, fall into a spiral sometimes. And that first day back, I'm always so vulnerable. Maybe it's the first week back, we'll see. I know I had it last year and I had to really kind of crack the whip with myself to get myself moving again. It wasn't about being productive, but it was about finding flow again and finding some positive energy and purpose and not feeling like, my God, I'm sitting here and the world feels too much again. The walls are closing in, you know, and they might well be. But in this moment right now, I'm all right. You know, I've got my jumper on, I'm warm. I've got a roof over my head. I've got a couple of little commissions on. I've got this podcast to do and talk to you guys and it's all right you know get some perspective <laughs> that's a note to myself but anyway um big thank you as i enter what i think is the now the ninth year of this podcast i'm going to count because i tried this last time and i got it wrong 
2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Yeah, the ninth year of the creative condition. So thank you for coming back. If you're a regular listener or you're relatively new, hello. If you're new, I'm pushing this thing a lot. So I hope to hear a new few new listeners uh, on board. Uh, if you liked the last episode, by the way, with uh, Stephen Cardwell, I, well, well, he wasn't my guest, but I responded to his query about starting again and filling a portfolio with self-initiated work and is it valid and all these things. I hope you enjoyed that. I had some lovely feedback, particularly from Steve himself, which was great. Um, I want to do more of those, so do get me some questions on the social platforms. Looking out for them as we speak. I put a call out this morning on LinkedIn. Not had any responses yet. Wide open. As long as it's a question that falls even vaguely within the realm of creativity. Could be about your practice, about your direction, about something in general, about an aspect of psychology. Uh, I'm happy to throw myself into the deep end, so send some questions in. Um, as ever, massive thank you in this ninth year to the founding supporter of the show, B Corp, and wonderful representative of mine in the world of illustration, Illustration X. You can check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. Um, so I hope you are well, guys. And, and, and I thought this was prime time to finally release my episode, my conversation with the founder and the editor of the Idler magazine, Tom Hodgkinson. Tom uh, was a joy to talk to. He uh, didn't hold back, that's for sure. Um, I'm a big proponent of honest conversation and debate. I don't like cancel culture. Tom doesn't hold back on certain topics. I loved that. He is, you know, he's he's he believes what he believes. He knows what he knows. He's a listener. He's a learner. And we talked about the value of debate in this cancel culture era and, and how what I loved that he said was that, you know, platforms like X or Twitter at the time when we were talking have basically monetized pub conversations but put it in this medium that makes it very alarming and very you know grandstandy and without nuance and i think it's really dangerous and we've seen the effects of that so we, we get into all that stuff we talk about the roots of idol magazine what it means you know what, what inspired him like the greek philosophers and about uh, dr samuel johnson famed idler um and really, I wanted to have this conversation because I think that we live our lives at far too fast a pace. You might remember back on episode 200 when I had Jen Graneman on the show, an ex uh, expert in sensitivity and introversion, that we talked at length about this stuff and how the human brain is not geared for the sheer amount of things it has to manage on a daily basis, the sheer sensory input that we have in today's world. It's not natural. It's why we feel burned out so much and overwhelmed and, you know, get on the negative emotion spectrum too much. So I wanted to talk to Tom about his motivations for starting Idol Magazine, how it's been in the last 30 years. 2023 was their 30th anniversary. Um, so I think now is as good a time as any to release that show as we lumber into a new year, maybe feeling a bit sluggish and a bit slow and why it's okay and why we need to allow ourselves to to live a little and get inspired again you know deadlines notwithstanding and, and uh, jobs and the, and the likes well you might you know if you if you listen to two episodes ago my show with Muragaya, he talked about how he's just been a little kinder to himself in terms of how he's living his life and allowing himself to go and see films because he's a big movie buff and all that stuff and i love that because it's cyclical and creativity is an extension of self, so we have to feed that with the right nutrients. And if we don't allow ourselves some breathing space and some time to have a more fulfilling life beyond just our careers, then it just becomes self-defeating and we burn out. So 
Go back and listen to that episode for our chat about that. We've got Alex Pask coming up, a judo car. That's a person who fights in judo to a very high standard. We know we're talking world championships and that kind of level. We're talking about floor states. It's a really great episode coming up in a few episodes' time. We're going to be chatting to Sarah Boris later this week. We've been doing some awesome design uh, design work. That reminds me, actually, that little trip of the words there. Design week. What a loss that is. They closed very suddenly, and it's heartbreaking. And this happened back in about 2011 when I had a real freelance crash where I lost about five clients in the space of you know a month. Design Week being one of them when they closed their print magazine, which I used to illustrate for under then art director Sam Freeman. And now it's gone completely, which is tragic because they do such great design journalism. And I just want to thank them for their partnership with me. You might have seen recent episodes where I've been reading out my column that I write for them on this podcast to share it in an audio format. Tom Banks and Angus Montgomery, both very kind to me as editors, took great leaps of faith when I didn't have that big of a track record of writing to give me a, you know, a sounding board, which was wonderful. And I've loved working with them. And they're just going to be missed, I think, by industry. They bring us so much great news and features. And I hope everyone steps up to take their place. You know, the other great platforms like Creative Boom, a good friend of mine, Katie Cowan, um, you know, there's Creative Block out there, there's a Computer Arts Magazine, but I think Design Week is going to leave an irreplaceable hole, you know. It's, it is a big loss, that one. So sad news on that front. Anyway, get me your questions, please, for the future episodes. I would love to hear them. Thank you for checking in. Go and check out the founding sponsor, illustrationx.com. And without further ado, I'm talking idling. This is a big conversation. Um, it's a long one. If it's not for you, you might want to break it down into a couple of parts. But I think it's all valuable stuff, and I love chatting to Tom Hodgkinson of the idler yeah okay well so what's your what's your background background childhood like what did that look like i always like to start there with guests because i think it's yeah well well, my parents are both fleet street hacks okay um so they came from uh my mum's mum uh was a sort of flower seller in sydney she had the interflora shop um and also they, they also sold at different points fruit and vegetables so she was um you know, she had her own small business. Uh, my mum, my parents are typical sort of grammar school generation, so their parents didn't go to university, um, but they were like the ultimate baby boomers. Mm-hmm. My mum went to grammar school. They both ran away as far as possible from their families. Um, met each other in Durham, Newcastle. You know, it was in Newcastle. It was part of Durham College then. Um, and then my mum was a teacher in South Shields, when that's her, her first job. Um, and then at nights, my dad would like get the coach to London and do night shifts on newspapers as a sub-editor. Um, and then they uh, moved to the leafy suburb of Richmond yeah. um, and bought their first house because of two up, two down. Um, and they had this amazing success, which I now realise. Um, both of them working in Fleet Street in the 70s and 80s really good salaries it took them a long time to get in but once they're in my mum was in her late 20s and she was on the Sunday people you know it was selling like four or five million copies a week mm. um, and so when it, when my brother and I were about eight or nine we were sort of transplanted from the state school to the um, private school and then they sent us to like you know posh schools and everything so so my brother and I sort of and, and then and then we've gone back down socially so yeah. my parents have this amazing social mobility, <laughs> with me and Will going to like you know top public schools, and then and then my brother and I have met, had sort of gone down on the other side. But childhood <laughs> was amazing because it was the 70s, It was brilliant. My parents were fantastic. They were really young. 
Um, you know, they were doing well at work. They they had a Morgan, and they used to. We had a pinball machine, um, table tennis, lots and lots of fun. You know, my parents had drunken parties. <laughs> Suggestion of wife swap of uh, you know wife swapping with the neighbours once. Um, we later found out. You know, my father would come would come downstairs and there'd be like people asleep on the floor and overflowing ashtrays and everything. Yeah. So they were we were completely abandoned because they were full time in jobs. My mother was such a hardcore feminist. Mm. Um, so she was called the woman who hates babies when we were small. She's so unmaternal. Um, and they were yeah. So they were very unhappy until until my mum got her first proper job when she was like 28, 29, mm. and then they were sort of fine. Um, but then my dad went weird when we were, I was about 13 and joined a sort of a cult, oh. um, <coughs> of which he is still a member. Um, but it's a very nice one, we like them, they're very friendly. Um, it's run by Indian women. Yeah. So from, this is the sort of story my brother and I tell anyway. My brother wrote a book about it, but... So when I was 13 and he was 11, my dad suddenly went from being this amazing fun dad, you know, he's, he was just a brilliant father. He was like, took us to the park, we made camps, you know. Um, we went to, took us to the fun fair. Uh, it was just like non-stop fun. We had air rifles shooting and, I don't know, just, he, he would throw fireworks into the fire, they'd explode everywhere and all the mums would get angry, and, you know. It was just really, really good fun. Yeah. Um, and really nice and we just loved him. And, um, and then suddenly he sort of came home and, and he used to eat like vast piles of meat and spaghetti bolognese and all the 70s things and they had you know, there were just people of their time, they were very, very 70s people. And then they became very 80s and they upgraded the house, sold the morgue and got a Volvo. But my dad got into meditation in a very, very serious way. Um, and then we had these, like, Indian women in saris coming around the house in the evening doing meditation sessions. And my father took us to meditation, which actually I quite enjoyed, you know. Um, and was talking to us about the sort of 5,000 year cycle and the law of karma and dharma at the kitchen table, you know. Um, and then I went to Cambridge and did English. I was mainly into, I mean, apart from my own apart from academic work, which I really enjoyed, I was into playing in bands, so we were basically in punk bands. My punk band at Cambridge was called Chopper, and we played some minor threat type music, um, which is quite unusual at the time in, for students, you know, because most of the student bands were sort of fair. I was in another one, it was sort of basically kind of, I don't know, joy sort of, you know, sub joy division. Mm you know, goth, miserable cure sort of stuff. And our band was like really, you know, energetic, baseball caps, trainers. Um, you know, we, we looked like the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Uh, and so I was really not at all, so, so we, we <laughs> that's what we, even though the other two were, three were also public school boys. <laughs> so we were an incredibly posh punk band, but we wanted to be, I guess loved the culture of it and skateboarding culture. Um, the, it was a particular inspiration because those bands like Minor Threat, they had their own record labels. Um, so there was this sort of anti-work thing that I liked about punk, generally, Clash. Mm. Um, so we used to, we went to, because of going to school in central London, we just going to gigs the whole time, you know, it started with like Susan and Banshees, The Cramps, yeah. um, Rockabilly, Psychabilly, The Clash is sort of second coming when they had sort of Mohawks. Mm. Um, in, so that was, uh, it's a place called the Hammersmith Clarendon we used to go to, um, and it was just a good fun time. Um, this would have been a the time where, the, where there was a lot more fun. 
at university because I mean you know not, not to criticize modern students but there is a lot more sort of staying in do the work go home you know there's a lot there's a lot less of the kind of cultural activity yeah, yeah no we had you know I was so lazy we had like I mean I, I now sort of feel a bit bad because it was paid for by the government in those days my mm. tuition you know and it was like a, it was a bit of a sort of privilege to be at Cambridge University we had really amazingly good teachers I mean top professors you know to do English um, and I wish a little bit I'd taken a, a bit more advantage of that in certainly my first second year um, but we had plenty of time to we did magazines my friend James and I often when I was looking back on creative projects it's often me and a friend so you know the, in the Care Left book um, Bill Drummond says it's a little known fact that your best mate is a genius because you sort of knock ideas around together mm. um, and so lots of and I noticed that that's, you know, even when I was at prep school, I was doing magazines. Even before that, I did a, a magazine called The Penguin when I was about eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I did, then when I was at my prep school, we did The King's House Times, The Sixth Form Rag. And each of these was with another, another uh, was with a friend. Um, I even did these sort of ridiculous podcast things when we were, I was like 11, going around Richmond with my friend, recording interviews with people with a, with a tape recorder. Um, which we thought was commercial, and we actually sent it to EMI. And I was like, what were we thinking? Yeah, but why not? Yeah, I know, yeah. We, I guess we got a letter back saying this, is, this has no commercial potential whatsoever, but it's amazing that we got a letter and he listened to it. And when we were in my band at school, Cursed Earth, we, were, um, we sent demo tapes to magazines and things, you know. So I really, I really desperately wanted to get a review in NME. And the same with Chopper. We, did, we got as far as uh, runner-up in the Cambridge Rock competition. And John Peel came and invited us on to his Radio Cambridge show. And then we turned up and uh, he sent us away because it was the day after Hillsborough. Yeah. And he said, I'm too depressed, I can't do it. And um, that was a tragedy of my life. Like, you know, he was going to interview us, play Chopper on the radio. Uh. N- not London radio, but, the Cam- but he had a Cambridge radio show, but still, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, the dream then with Peel session, um, you know. Anyway, so we carried on with the band, but, we, we, you know, it all sort of collapsed. Mm. Um, and I, I sold my bass to record on tape exchange. Mm. I got my first job was at Rough Trade in Slam City Skates, which was a skateboarding shop, and that was in Common Garden and Portobello Road, um, and also Rough Trade shop. And the, the one in Portobello Road is still there. <laughs> the basement was a skateboarding shop, um, and so that was brilliant because I had this year of meeting. Because a lot of the people at Cambridge are just going to, I mean, uh, boring. They're just going to be bankers and lawyers or whatever, going mm. to the city. Um, me and my friends had no interest in that at all. That they all, you know, they, they get pissed for three years. At the end of the three years, they go to the milk round, they get a job at a bank, and then they have a, a gravel drive and a Range Rover, you know, 20 years later. Yeah. And they're earning big salaries, like, not interested. Um, so... Uh, and the gang of people I met at the skateboarding shop in Rough Trade, they were, I mean, actually, they're still sort of basically some middle class indie fans and skateboarders. Mm. Um, but they were creative, artistic, entrepreneurial, you know. Yeah. Um, the kind of, the boys, you know, I was, the boys who came into the shop were like sort of 12, 13, 14, 15. They all went into creative areas, you know. Um, well, a lot of them did anyway. And it was a very, very creative scene. I met Gavin Hill, particularly influential. He's also a friend of James Brown's, who was a big 
photojournalist later. Uh, he did. They all do. You know, they did their own fanzines. They did T-shirt companies. Um, and I, I thought I'd given all that up. Um, fanzines, bands, T-shirt companies, DJing, or whatever. All that sort of range of activities. And they were still doing it. And okay, maybe basically living on the dole, but you know, sort of, you know, somehow managing. And I'm still friends with a lot of them now. Um, that was a really good year, and that was really inspiring. And I wrote a few pieces for uh, the Guardian and the Independent while I was there. Mm. Um, not enough to make a living and then got a job through my flatmate at the Sunday Mirror magazine three days a week as a researcher and I was there for two years that turned into a full-time job um, and that was pretty miserable not well paid and I don't know I guess too snooty and to work for the Daily Mirror I wanted to work for the Independent mm. um, but looking back it was a brilliant training and you know it was the, it, I was I was on the editorial desk of the magazine as a, as a kind of researcher, sometimes writing bits of rubbish. But you saw how a whole magazine, proper, a proper professional magazine selling millions of copies was put together, you know. Mm-hmm. And they had a big, big readership. Um, Leslie Granton was the wine correspondent. Um, <laughs> Robert Kilroy sit, sit, did the problems page, I think, you know. It's like, <laughs> well, why not? Yeah, it was amazing. And, but sometimes, you know, I, I did a couple of good things, like I interviewed Vic and Bob about underpants or something I occasionally got something good into it what's really interesting though in in that story and and what you'll find in most stories which is why I like to go right back is that if you when you stop and look at that life from the outside looking in the the range there of those experiences be it punk be it the ashtray party you know on the floor the parties there seeing the skate kids doing their thing when you look at some of its parts there and you're honest enough with yourself to look at what you enjoy and what feels good and actually find a mix of that that works for you as a personality, then you're on the right path. And I think that, in some way, kind of seems to characterise what the idol is about. Would I be right in that? It is. It's, it's, it's trying to find the path that's right for you. Mm. You know, and I'm probably a bit more grown up about the bankers and lawyers and stuff. You know, fair enough. If they want to do that, it's up to them. And they, you know, they get well paid. No one wants to be poor. It's miserable. You know. So. Um, <laughs> I'm aware that a lot of our readers have jobs, <laughs> you know, and I'm glad that we have uh, readers who have jobs as lawyers because they can afford to come on our holidays and they can afford to buy the magazine. <laughs> um, so, you know, when people say, you know, I'd like to be an idler, but I can't afford it, you know, it's like, well, it's only 27 quid a year, but anyway, so yeah, obviously there's a mix of different people, but, and, and you can be an idler in your spare time and not take your job too seriously. So I realise there's a way of being an idler for people who, you know, haven't got the actually got the courage, the inclination to sort of go completely freelance. It's really tough, mm-hmm. um, and you might not have much money, and you might be, you might be going up and down. You might have tax problems, and you know you've got to also be a salesman. You've got to like mm-hmm. sell yourself. You know, it's not an easy combination of uh, you know some people would be too shy, mm-hmm. and they'd rather just go into a job. You know, so but yeah, essentially the idler. I think you know we're trying to help people live well. Yeah. And um, if you, you know, when I look back on things I was doing, I think one thing I, I used to talk about with Dan is like, you know, if you can do the thing that you would, if you can get paid for doing the thing that you want to do anyway, that you used to do voluntarily, like, I will probably be editing magazines for nothing. I mean, I would do it for nothing. And I, I, I did do it for nothing mm-hmm. when I was eight, when I was 12, when I was, you know, 13, when I was. Uh, 18, 19, I edited magazines for nothing, for fun, you know, and I worked on magazines for nothing, for fun, and I still would. Um, 
but I've also managed to sort of get make that sort of pay me as well now. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of ultimate thing. If you can find the thing that you would be doing anyway yeah. um, and get paid for it. And all those, when I look back, all those things were there. Um, it's the mix of the creativity, the entrepreneurialism. Um, but yes, also, you know, and then I'll, I'll tell you what happened next. Um, because that was a significant time, because I was 25. And this often happens to people, I think, I'm sure you've seen this. Um, you know, you get sacked. Uh, and I was like, okay, I've been sacked. <laughs> um, and I was renting a room with uh, renting a flat with three other people at the top end of Portobello Road and it was you know it's quite cheap it was like 70 quid a week um, and so it was a nice sort of refuge but I remember sort of going back there and thinking right fuck you know what do I do now okay I'll go and sign on and then I'll start freelancing and you could in those days just about get away with getting your sort of you know 90 pounds a fortnight in cash in Listen Grove and then not admitting to them that you've written a um feature for the Daily Telegraph the same week and being paid three or four hundred quid, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I thought journalism was just incredible because it's like, you are, I'm actually getting paid to do this. This takes like about two hours. It's really fun. Um, and it was actually, it was quite well paid, you know. So it's like freelance journalist, that's what I want to do, definitely, you know. Um, and uh, so I sort of persisted with that. But then also I, I thought, okay, this is the time when I, I can actually get on with the idol because I've been thinking about it for years. Um, and talking about it and everyone was like oh, he's never going to get this you know mm. I was 23 I had the idea and I had the whole idea like uh, in a second it's called The Idler it promotes laziness but it's about creativity it's about living a fulfilling life you know and it won't just be a magazine it'll be it'll go into other things um, anyway and so I went to see my friend Gav who had graduated from uh, St Martin's in an MA he'd done an MA in, in you know, graphic design mm. um, and a very very brilliant person so he agreed to help me do the first issue um, and it was great we, you know you sort of again it's the care left thing you suddenly realize that you're completely surrounded by brilliant young people talented people um, if we look at issue one you know Louis Saru's in it um, Gavin Hills uh, my friend Tom Shone um, and, you know, a lot of them went on to have very successful careers, you know, but we were like 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, that sort of age. You mm-hmm. know? Um, so it's in a way sort of quite easy to gather all these people together into one place. Brilliant illustrators, um, photographers, Ed Nelson, you know. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was just very, very satisfying. And I was on the dole, so I went on this sort of dolees kind of business course, uh, which was free, somewhere around here, Portobello Trust. And the guy there said, just print 50 copies, just start it, do anything, you know, just like get on with it. Um, and then do the next one, you know, just carry on. And so we, we raised £810 from parents, friends, selling lifetime subscriptions, things like that. Um, kind of basically crowdfunding, you know, mm-hmm. um, but without someone taking the 10% in the middle. So I wrote to everyone I could think of, and I don't know, my dad, my parents put in 100 quid each. And somehow we managed to cobble the money together. Um, and that was enough to print a thousand copies, um, which we did. And then I went to Rough Trade, where I was still friendly with, um, sold some there. And then through there, I met a distributor, um, and we did two more issues that way. And then issue three, um, amazing thing was that we got a call from the Guardian, and the marketing director, who was very young, you know, 
he was 26 or 28. He was marketing director at The Guardian. Um, and this was probably 1995 or four, somewhere around there. It's, oh, we really like the idler, and we think he's starting a magazine section, you know, Wired, we're going to get in. Um, this other magazine about, uh, about the internet, because I was so into the internet. I bought a modem, I had a, you know, 93. We had an email address on issue one of the idler. No one else even heard of email. Yes. You know, we took the first modem into the Guardian, as my friend Matthew remembers, and showed them what the internet was. So we were very, very cutting edge on that sort of thing. Um, my friends in the skateboarding magazines, they were doing skate, they were, they were working from home, they were linking themselves up with modems, you know. We were just so far ahead. And people like my friend Toby Young were going, oh, the internet, it's just a CB radio for the 90s, isn't it? <laughs> like, oh, such an idiot. And um, so, all sorts of fun things, and we just felt very, very confident, I don't know why. <laughs> and it also, in the background culturally, we were sort of, it was like rave, rave, rave. Every weekend it was like ecstasy, pills, uh, you know, warehouse parties and, um, and then also, you know, then it was Britpop gigs and we were, mm. uh, so we were into all of that sort of thing and, and the, we had amazing parties in a sort of secret venue in Clerkenwell under the, it's not there anymore, under Farrington Tube Station, it was sort of semi-legal. Great train robber Bruce Reynolds was there and, you know, John Cooper Clark we put on and we had these really brilliant parties. And, the marketing director came down to those and he was like, oh, I really want to get in with these guys. And we, Before that, we had parties in Kensington, which were also really good. In fact, uh, name dropping, but Rachel Voice came to our festival and she said, oh, my husband used to come to those parties, um, Daniel Craig, yeah. um, and said they were incredibly cool. And I was like, oh, that nice. <laughs> so he, well, you've both done quite well for yourself since then, haven't you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there, were, there was definitely sort of hip. Yeah. Um, and so this trendy department at the Guardian wanted to get in with us um, and they gave us an office, they invested 50 grand in the magazine, they helped us, they gave us publishing advice and then um, they had a, then a year after that they, there was, they had a sort of special projects department called Product Development Unit, PDU, which had started the Guardian Guide and various other projects like that um, and it was a bit commercial, it also helped get advertising, they, you know, an advertiser might come and say we want to, you know, I don't know, reach these people. Have you got any ideas? And then the advertising department would come to us to ask us to come up with a creative idea. They could pitch back. So the Guardian would do some of the creative for the advertiser. And that was our department. But we were also, you know, inventing new sections. I mean, there were so many new sections. We did space, the property supplement, which is in a square, yeah. jobs and money, the sort your life out section. We did, you know, Saturday supplements. We, did, we helped the observer develop things. So... And it was called the development department. Gavin and I were invited to basically take it over. It was a kind of a coup. They sacked half the other people and they installed us two. And so there we were, we were like 28. And we had a team of 15 people. And we, had our, we, were, we were called head of, I was called head of creative development or head of editorial development you know, at The Guardian. And we were having meetings with the editor, with the managing director, Carolyn McCall, who now runs ITV, you know. And they were actually quite young. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we were there for three years. That was a really fun period. And then Gavin and I quit and did the same sort of work, as I said earlier, on a commercial basis. Um, so we, we, we retained the garden as a client. We moved to an office in Camden, which happened to be above Savage and Best, which is a sort of trendy, uh, sort of Britpop PR company, um, who we actually shared an office with. Anyway, just sort of non-stop fun, really. Yeah. And really, it's like, just, and then we were, so it was Groucher Club, Coke, drugs, you know, sort of late nights, staying yeah. up all night and... Um, 
and and then doing you know I, I would come into the Gav and I would do this to each other. Would I come into the office and pick up the answer phone and then Gav would go, oh, Tom, it, it's five. Um, I've just got back. It's okay if I come in a bit later. You know. Um, you suddenly find yourself sort of like awake at nine in the morning somewhere, like someone's flat. Yeah. Um, and I guess we're in the idle, you can't really say no. You can't really say no, exactly. <laughs> so we really, really had a lot of fun. And then I met Victoria, and, um, we had babies, and then I decided, uh, I just woke up and I was like, I don't want to do this advertising shit anymore, actually. Yeah. I want to write my own book. Um, and so I'd already had a proposal for my first book with a publisher for a few years, and we hadn't, we just, it just got stuck. So I found a literary agent and got it all moving again. And got an advance for like 30 grand, which is like amazing. And that was, be amazing now. Then that was like 25 years ago. That was 20 years ago, sorry. Mm. That was 2002. Um, and uh, so I was like, Vic, and we'd, we'd had our first baby. We were living in the Shepherd's Bush. We bought a small terrace house. And um, I was like, I want to get out of London. So we rent. We found a very cheap farmhouse to rent, £550 a month, like five-bedroom farmhouse in North Devon, and moved there. And I gave up all the advertising stuff, um, which I now realise was stupid, because <laughs> um, it was so well-paid. It was so easy to make a lot of money. Um, and it was. I enjoyed it. I just, I just wanted to do my... I didn't want to... Maybe because being egotistical, I wanted to have my name on my work. Um, so... So I got so I spent a year writing a book, and we had small children. We were, and I was gardening in the afternoon, and you know, completely abandoned that Soho Rapture Club life and we embraced country life. We were near the sea. We made friends down there. Um, we were there for twelve years, um, and I wrote four books there, and uh, with decreasing success. So the first one was very very a big successful book, twenty five languages sold all over the world, you know, and then the second one was quite successful the third one did okay and then the fourth one was a complete flop I'm still paying at a massive advance I'm still paying it back okay and then eventually the and then but then we started we, we'd been doing festivals um, we started doing events at festivals as an extension of the parties it was a thing festivals are quite good for like growing up hedonistic families um, because you can basically kind of carry on can smoke outdoors and yeah. you can like your children are in the tent and you can still be drinking, but not far away from them. Um, and so we had quite a lot of our family's mates who, Port Elliot Festival, Glastonbury, you know, um, and we did events at Port Elliot. We grew, we had a big tent for 200 people. We put on like 40 talks over the weekend. Mm. That was really good. The Idol magazine itself moved to um, Ebury Publishing uh, yeah. for about five, year, five years, and it was a book. And then it sort of went smaller and smaller, and I guess wound it right down to practically nothing. And then Victoria and I had this ridiculous idea of opening our own bookshop in London, which would give us a bit of a handle of being London life back again. Um, and uh, even a place to stay, you know. Um, and we would, it would, like, not the school of life, but, you know, we would have ukulele classes, like a choir, Latin lessons, you know, history classes, mm. authors, book launches, cultural events, sewing, you know, like a real life improvement centre um, in a lovely shop, which we did somehow. We, 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 we walked our house, we borrowed money. We, we, went about, we borrowed about 60 grand, I think, um, and struggled away for four and a half years and gave up. So it was a fucking nightmare mm. uh, financially, although it, did, it was quite successful in that it got lots of uh, attention. 
Yeah. When we fund it, you know, when we just, it's like a small business, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of working 12, 14 hours a day and living in grinding poverty. I was like, no, my idea was to sort of have loads of money and do about three yeah. or four hours a day. <laughs> well, it goes against all the principles, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> so I wanted to engage you a little bit on the, on the kind of history of Ireland, not too in-depth, but the, the, I'm fascinated by that, the ancient Greece and uh, Socrates. And I mean, I watched a couple of videos of some of your kind of concise history of, and it just blew me away. And Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that wasn't something that was in my mind when I started. I, I didn't know anything about all that stuff. Um, but when we opened the shop, it was something that I wanted to teach people because... Uh, at actually at the Alan, Bo- Alan de Botton School of Life when it started um, I'd done a few events with them and I'd met a guy there called Mark Vernon who I'm still very good friends with um, and he'd done his degree in or, a, a, a um, doctorate in um, uh, Plato um, and had written a book about it and I said well we could give our first class when we op- on the first evening of opening the shop an introduction to ancient philosophy um, and so he did, and it was Epicureans, Stoics, Cynics, Skeptics, Peripatetics, and Academics. You know, the sort of six schools of ancient Greece, which were all inspired by the figure of Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought, fuck, you know, I did philosophy at university. I, I didn't actually know this it's basic stuff, and it's really not difficult to understand. Um, when people think about philosophy, they think it's like how many angels on the head of a pin, or just like, you know, when I'm not in the room, is this table still there, and that kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> and I don't want to think about that, but no, it's not. It's like they were about self-help, really. Um, Socrates was a very, very appealing character. He was very human. Um, he was married maybe twice. He had children, you know, problems, he didn't have any money. Uh, he drank, you know, he, he... But he knew all the sort of top people in Athens, you know, um, and started this incredible movement. Really, and, and was killed by the state. So it's an amazing story, and I just think more people should know about it. So we, we just wanted to, to teach them about that. Mm. Um, and the more I get into it, it's been ten years I've been studying it now. The more interesting it becomes, and yeah, they were. They said, you know, philosophy was a new approach to life. It was almost like a religion. Mm. Um, Christianity borrowed from it. Uh, it was about making the time to reflect, and they said that's the most important part of life. And it's not about yes. You do, you know, we, no one wants to be. The cynics, you know, embrace voluntary poverty, um, like a sort of St. Francis of Assisi or something like that, a bit like Jesus. Um, they lived with nothing, lived in rags, didn't have a job, you know, begged, um, masturbated in the street, whatever, and um, lived in a barrel, you know, had no possessions, all that kind of thing. Well, that's the theme that you can see in pop songs, the bare necessities. John Lennon and stuff, you know, get rid of your possessions. Okay, most people that Aristotle said most people don't want to be like that. Um, you know, poverty is horrific for most of us, particularly for children, and you know. Um, but you really should allow, you should force yourself to make time for um, being creative and being philosophical. So, you know, one of my influences is Penny Rambo from Crass. The anarchist punk band, mm. and, you know, and Penny's um, quite a difficult character. I haven't seen him for a few years, but you know, he, we had he, we had amazing conversations. He used to come and stay in Devon, like went to stay there, um, and uh, you know, he really means it. What they were trying to do with Crass, and they did they did some amazing things, introducing this kind of concept of freedom to a wider group. It was like went beyond the middle classes, you know. Um, 
these are very sort of bohemian ideas, vegetarianism, feminism, you know, against animal cruelty, um, uh, you know, questioning wage slavery consumption, all that sort of thing. And they, they've always been around, but normally they were for the, for the posh people, really. Um, and I think punk was really good at, and crass were at getting this stuff out to a much, much wider audience, and mm. pop music in general. Rave was brilliant. Rave was a big, big, significant movement, you know. Happy Mondays. You know, this sort of bohemianism for ordinary people, isn't it? We had Bez on the cover of The Idler in the 90s. I had a night out with Bez. Yeah. And it was fantastic, you know, and it's like... OK, I, I, obviously... <laughs> uh, we, we watched um, 24-hour party people the other night. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was actually on Tony Wilson's TV show once. Oh, really? Yeah, in yeah. the 90s again. We, we went up... Because he had that sort of... Like a sort of chat show with a gang and he was like on a you know yeah we, we were one of the sort of plants in the audience you know yeah and he asked me a question and i kind of went uh and, and then the producer said oh can we do that again and tony said tony said no no that was really good you know like he was pausing he's the idol that was good <laughs> <laughs> and we almost got him to do a talk in london and then he and then he couldn't because of his job and uh, yeah. but um you know now joy division it's actually a great mm. story, isn't it? It's lovely. We showed it, and then we watched the Joy Division documentary the, the, the day after with my, with my daughter, who's like uh, 20, mm. in order to sort of educate her into this stuff. Because that's what I grew up with as well. We, you know, we were massive Joy Division fans when I was at school. Yeah. And then to see that evolving into New Order, and it's just an amazing sort of progression. Um, I feel like we need, I feel like we need a, you know, a movement now. I mean, anything from... You know, you mentioned there in ancient Greece and with um, with the, the rave. And it's, I, I feel like at the moment there's there's obviously so much division and it's so seeded, isn't it, to keep people. You know, somebody shouting walk and they're shouting gang. You know, and it's it's horrible kind of um, everyone pecking at each other. And I feel like I almost feel like and I thought about this the other day, but I feel like social media has almost become this. It's almost become a digital revolution in the same way that the industrial revolution what you know in terms of what that did to people and created this work ethic that only served a finite amount of people that made the money at the top and it's back where we are now isn't it the elite have us again shouting at one another in the streets while then they'll pull a move and you know they'll criticize the strikers but then they'll tell us that this move is to is for the hard-working people and it's like oh fuck you it's like it's so Transparent when you actually step back and just try to live life on those values that the idol represents, I feel. Um, I don't know what the question is there, but you, is it eudaimonia? This came up in one of your talks. Yeah, that's a nice word, eudaimonia, yeah. That meant, meant sort of being at one with your demon, um, but, or basically happiness. You know, so, so when they say eudaimonic philosophy, that's a, a philosophy that's aimed towards being happy. But mm -hmm. yeah, on the internet thing, I mean, as I said, you know, I bought a modem in 93, um, and before even the World Wide Web had been invented, and there was, we had tools like Gopher, and um, I remember Madonna recording a message on the internet, um, and it was like a really amazing thing, and we, you played it back on your screen, it's like, this is unbelievable. Um, and we thought it was going to be a sort of anarchic force for the good, uh, give everyone a lot of freedom for self-expression, to do their own magazines, fancies, communicate more easily around the world. Which it can which be, it's, of it course. Had, which it can be. Yeah. Um, but actually it was a tool, it was a tool, it was a, it was a tool for, um, as you say, it, it only really benefited the, 
the very rich because it's it tends towards the creation of monopolies. So I mean, uh, just one simple example is insurance brokers. They, you know, my parents used to go to an insurance broker in Richmond. It was in a little basement. There's like three of them. It was their own little business, um, and they would do the holiday insurance or the house insurance or whatever. Um, there must have been hundreds or thousands of those all over the country. Um, but with the internet, um, you just get one or two brokers, like Go Compare, which is the same thing. But they've got the whole of the country's business. Um, and it's, it's the same with Facebook or, you know, um, Facebook, you know, my parents were lucky or talented enough to be in Fleet Street when, before, when Fleet Street had all that advertising. So all that advertising supported hundreds and thousands of magazines and newspapers all over the world. And Facebook, which is the reason why people invested in it correctly, for that, from their point of view, um, promised to steal all that advertising from one company, um, which it did. And it's the, it's, it practically broke news organisations. They don't, they're not, they don't have the same amount of advertising and power that they used to. The Mirror Group used to turn over more than the small country, according to my mum, you know. But, all, but the other thing about, the other thing is that in the 70s and 80s, there was, uh, a much closer differential in pay between the workers, so-called, and the managers. So the printers were very well paid. It was unionised, heavily unionised. Uh, my parents were very well paid. And then the people who, uh, and they were journalists, the people who owned it were on a bit more, but they weren't on like 100 times more, 50 times more, whatever they are now. Um, so things were actually sort of more equal, I think. And there was more, you know, so the internet is, it's exploited um, you know, vanity. Um, it's exploited people's natural, uh, laudable you know, desire for communication, self-expression. Um, and it's got us all working for them for nothing um, to do that. Uh, and this is what I find incredibly irritating about Twitter. And people don't seem to get it. However many times I tell them. <laughs> um, I don't know why, my example is always Owen Jones. And he's always like, you know, people should be paid fairly for the work they do. Um, no one should work for free. He says this on Twitter without seeming to realise that he's working for Twitter for free. So he's working for one of the most sort of uber capitalist um, exploiting companies, which makes money by selling ads to, which is an advertising sales business. It sells ads, that's what it does, to very, very large companies of whom he would probably disapprove. So he's working for free for this system, for nothing just in return for sort of some kind of, you know, promotion, self-promotion. Also, that's taken the place of fanzines. You know, we always do zines, fanzines, and people I know still are doing them. It's more difficult. We don't, there's no letter writing anymore. A letter was a creative act. You opened a letter, you, there's little drawings in it, bits of paper fell out, postcards and things, you know. So it's actually under the promise of, you know, letting, allowing, allowing people to be creative with their phones and everything. It's taken it away, and it's sucked everyone into this kind of horrific um, competitive world because it's actually the sort of reflection of a, of a Silicon Valley mindset, which is libertarian, basically. Um, and it's a bit like a pub, like the, the personality of the owner does affect the um, atmosphere of the pub. Uh, and it's a bit the medium is the message, so Facebook is... It's a bit like Zuckerberg, and it's sort of greedy and bland, and um, but you know I, I accept it works as an advertising 
We, yeah. we, you know, we use it to advertise the island because there's millions of people on it, and I, yeah. we have been able to find quite a few hundred new subscribers through paying Facebook to find it them for us. Me too, as an author, it's a great way to find readers for my fiction. You know, and it works. Yeah, it, it so does work, and people it. like it. You know, I, I but my bigger, that, but my bigger problem with it is the sort of mass distraction that I see, and this goes back to the idol's principles. And I worry about, you know, even about close friends. It's, I see so many people wasting so many collective hours even if it's just in bursts of minutes well, look at Graham Linehan scrolling and, and, and mindless kind yeah, of yeah. checking and liking whereas yeah. as, it's, you, it's, as it's, you guys push it's made to be addictive you know yeah as you guys very much yeah. push and teach could that time not be better spent going for a walk and thinking about what you want to do with yeah, your exactly. life you know? I think, that's what I said to my children when they were younger I, mean, I, I think I regret it now having been a bit, bit overly shouty about video games and stuff but I was like is there anything, anything better than playing this video game? It's like just, just staring out the window, do nothing, just stare at lying in your bed. You know, just lying in your bed and do nothing. I'd, I'd be infinitely prefer that. Yeah. You know, the daydreaming. Yeah. Where's the time for daydreaming? And they, they fill up every sort of. And then there's so many bad things about it. We don't have to go over all those. The you know its effect on girls' self-esteem and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and in fact, woke culture, though I'm sort of obviously basically supportive of, about of, of progressive causes, you know. Um, and we were like super woke when I was at Cambridge in the late 80s. It was really sort of feminist and everything, you know. Yeah. To the point where you were sort of like, actually the lads magazines were a slight relief from being a bit buttoned up yeah. when I was at university in the late 80s. Like, um, anyway, we certainly were, and you know, very respectful of women to the point of like, not chatting up at all, you know, when they mm-hmm. probably would have wanted to be chatted up. <laughs> like, well, maybe not, probably not, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, but, but that also can be a bit of a straitjacket for people, so that the young people are sort of worried about using the wrong words and, you know. Yeah. And it's a, it's a source of stress, it can make people very depressed. Why can't people just have a conversation? Disagree. I, well, you're absolutely right. I think new, I think nuance, nuance has been butchered in recent yeah, times. Yeah. I think you know, I, I'm quite fortunate that I've, I'm from a, work, a working class background. I have a lot of friends. Well, you, you don't have to don't, don't deal with areas. that sort of nonsense. Well, no, I've, I've got, I've got, but I've got such a sphere. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. So, yeah. so when all my design mates were kind of shocked by Brexit, I wasn't because no, I, no, I heard no. the conversations. And I understood yeah, the yeah. disaffection and how yeah. the media and the government played yeah. that to perfection. Yeah, they did. They um, did very well. And I can understand that too. You know, we lived in North Devon. Um, they were pro Brexit. I mean, it was a bit before that, but I could, they would have. You know, I could see why. And I understand it. They were pissed off. And also, you know, people, people at the London liberal elite, they underestimate the fact of how much other people outside London uh, are not part of the. You know. Yeah. <laughs> And don't think the same way, um, and they have genuine concerns. And you know, and it was the same with Trump, wasn't it? And like, I think who was it? Um, I mean, Adam Curtis understood this night when I interviewed him, and he said, "Well, people were given a big button saying fuck off, and they pressed it." Yeah. Um, it was almost like rebellious. But the, the the good thing is, I can go. I can go and sit with any number of friends, particularly the ones from back home in Yorkshire, and and we can have good you know, salty debates for two hours over beers and we can all come away having learned something and yeah, we're yeah. still as good a mix, yeah. if not better mix than we were yeah. before. And yeah. I just think it's really sad that that's been pulled from society very calculated. It has, it has. Because, it, you know, cause it, those Twitter conversations should be kept in the pub, really. 100%. You know? And yeah. it's like, it's like they, they, Twitter's like taken pub chats and monetized them. You know, we used to have all these conversations, you know, we still do, as he said, like, we can disagree. Someone goes, bollocks, fucking, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, and then actually you think, mm, maybe, you know, you sort of go home and you think, oh, maybe they had a point actually, you know. Your, your, your mind's been expanded. On Twitter, no one ever thinks that that person's got a point. They go, idiot, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's, it's the medium, like I said earlier, the medium 
encourages you to behave in a certain way and Twitter encourages you somehow, something in the way it's set up, um, the system itself encourages you to disagree, argue, because that makes them more money. Yeah, it's, it's so toxic, but one of the best tweets I ever saw was a lad who just completely flummoxed and he commented, he just said, is it woke, he was in response to a climate crisis thing and he said, is it woke to not want Armageddon? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. That's what I mean, it's, it's this apocalyptic cult thing. Yeah. And it's like, join our cult. I mean, there have always been these apocalyptic cults ever since the beginning of time. And they also, the world, end of the world is now, it's about to end tomorrow. Join our cult, you'll yeah. be saved. Well, you know, we only change that by, you know, we only avert any disasters through compassion, through creativity, through, through idling, and through, you know, just start stepping back and thinking. A we should, bit we should respect other people, you know, because that's the problem with the woke thing, it's not respecting other I was brought up to, you know, I think respect is a good word, you know, you respect the other person's point of view. You don't have to agree with them, but you know, sort of, you respect it, listen to them. Yeah. Okay, some views are, you know, I'm not saying paedophiles or whatever, you know, there are, there are some things which in law are illegal, murder, you know, which are very <laughs> clearly yeah, set out. Of you know. um, but it's like, you know, when someone made a joke about, I don't know, like, you hear these stories, I don't know whether, the other thing is that these stories get exaggerated by the Daily Mail. There are not that many woke things actually happening, you know. No, it, it's you know, very much a media talk. It is, it's tool. like this Winterval one. Yeah. You know, that happens every Christmas, like, uh, I think it's stopped now, but it used to be a common thing, right? Someone said, oh yeah, have you heard that Birmingham City Council um, are renaming Christmas Winterville? Oh. Isn't that, is it, that politically, <laughs> political threat has gone mad? I've it, heard that, yeah. yeah. And it's not true, it's complete bollocks, yeah. I haven't made it up. It's plant yeah, Winterville. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite hilarious. <laughs> it's a really funny one. Well, it is. I think it's. I think it's horrendous. And don't get me wrong. I'm. You know, I'm a. I'm a nice guy. I, if I upset someone's feelings, it, it kills me. I'm quite an empath. But, but to the, to the point of that, it's such a straitjacket on creativity because, God, you know, people are terrified of saying the, the wrong yeah. thing. You know, quite frankly, I within reason, I don't give a shit on this podcast or in my in my books. Yeah, and that's the joy of literature. Well, you're an artist. You know, it's, it's like but, we had the. Um, uh, <laughs> this wouldn't be, you know, people keep saying we, that wouldn't be allowed now, but it actually wouldn't. Like our, our column, um, Bad Advice, uh, with Bill Drummond and Mark Manning from Zodiac Mindwalk, and there's a picture of them looking really grumpy. And it says, Bad Advice, we fucked up our lives, now it's your turn. And someone actually, someone did cancel their subscription, a, a, a reader from Brighton. But I mean, you have to push to a degree, don't you? There was a story from James Brown about, you know, he ran a story in GQ from the Gallagher's talking about. Drink, uh, a drinking competition with George Best, uh, not George Best, um, George Harrison's son on an aeroplane that, that he lost and ended up having to be taken off the flight in a wheelchair. And he just ran the story without fact checking it, and it was total nonsense. And George Harrison's estate was sort of on them, and it's really 25 grand fine later for, for really? um, Condé Nast. Really? Yeah, which, but well, that is a bit, but, that is a bit, you know, if James Brown had gone to journalism school, that wouldn't have happened. But then, but then at the same time, is that it's not the argument that you do have to break a few eggs to, to, to get some results. And I'm not saying we, we you know we, i think anyone with decency knows where the line is and sometimes you, you will cross it but are we, are we not you know when you when you look around and you see the behavior of the elite and then you find out that oh yeah exactly you know yeah. where i saw we're, we're, i saw, we're being straight jacketed, I saw something about a bill last week about you know trying to tell social media companies to crack down on any positive depiction of migrants in boats that you know when we when we get in there you think to yourself no 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 we're in a, a dangerous place. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking at it wholly negative, but my point is that we need... I talked to a neuroscientist about this who specialises in creativity, just to bring it back to creativity, 
And she talked about the absolute need in today's society for, for she termed it as active boredom. But it, it's against it, that. When you look at the creative process, and I've been studying the science of all this, you know, the need for the subconscious mind to generate and to process the experiences of life. It's, it's absolutely the basis of it. That, that was the whole point of the idea at the beginning. That's what Dr. Johnson said, you know. Um, and he said, because he, he, he worked so quickly, but he spent hours and hours lying in bed thinking. And the more he thought about everything, the quicker he got his work done. He was very lazy, but he was very productive. So that's what I just thought was like, yes, that's obviously true. That's what I'm like. I'm incredibly lazy, but I'm also super ambitious. And, you know, I can be very academic and hardworking. And I can do well in the exams and everything. And I, I love... I still do love reading and, you know, mm-hmm. English literature, philosophy and everything. I was like, yeah, that's it, <laughs> idling. <laughs> that's the way forward. <laughs> and it's true, and it's just good for you, you know, it just really is. And it's, it's a good check against the, um, uh, the sort of earn and spend ethic. Yeah. Um, and as you say, the, you know, the, uh, it's called the default no- mode network, isn't it? When, when the um, brain relaxes apparently relaxes. Another part of it springs into life, you know, and it's sort of working overtime, and that's the creative part, so they say. And the, the, the neuroscientists in a thousand years might be saying something different, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. scientists say. It's um, true, but we've all had the shower thought, and that's what it comes yeah, to. Exactly, when exactly. When you step yeah, back yeah, from life yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah. and just allow your, your... They used to call it three ons, and the Chinese philosophers, it was like, on, on the toilet, uh, on horseback or on something else, you know. So there are these three ons where you would have good ideas. You know, just correct. imagine being on horseback, sort of. Yeah. You know, like you just got that time to think, and you know, I think a good job would have been one of those guys on the canals in the 18th century, like taking coals to Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. It's like they go at three miles an hour. Yeah. They didn't even have motors; they were dragged by a horse. Mm. So he just sat there, like it must have been amazing. I'll tell you what's a good one in today's world, security guards. Yeah, yeah, they're all yeah, mad yeah. as a box of frogs, but yeah, because they've yeah, got yeah. so much time on their hands, yeah. in their little booths, the that, fabrications what, um, that they come up with. That's what John Cooper Clark said when I interviewed him. He's like, there used to be a lot of these jobs around. Night watchmen. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a night watchman and you could just, you just like read so much. Yeah. You know, and you could just get so much work done while being paid. <laughs> that's a good job. But yeah, so there are still days around, aren't there, security guard jobs and things? Well, there are, there are. And actually, you know, do you know, there's something that you said that I found that was quite profound, actually, that I heard. And it was, I get, I've had the last couple of years, I've, I've never really struggled with mental health too much. And I attribute that to my belonging in creativity. And that I've actually lived by a lot of these principles that the idler promotes. Be it by accident, be it because I had parents that just said, "Look, you're going to spend 40 hours a week doing something, making it something you're into." Or you, that you, Is that how they sort of brought you up, really? Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. they worked very basic yeah. jobs. My dad full time mm. in a factory, my mum mm. part time hairdresser. It was kind of a stereotypical working mm. class setup. Mm. But they knew that you know that, that life was too short, and they sort of mm. encouraged me to push my drawing, whatever it was, my yeah. football. Just you know, find mm. the thing that you enjoy and do it. But actually, I think that's so when you got you know, it's like. Certain people I know don't have encouraging parents, and they're the ones with the mental health problems. Mm. And it makes all the difference. My parents, have, for, for all, all their weirdnesses and stuff, they've always been incredibly encouraging. Yeah. Um, but one thing. So your parents were always saying, "Yeah, no, go for it." They so, were. They, yeah, they, yeah. But, but but they're no pressure either. They're just like, kind yeah, of yeah, your yeah, way, yeah. You know. But what? But That's good parenting. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Not too much pressure. Not like, did you get? Did you, yeah. Did you, you came second. What? Who came first? <laughs> There's only one person in this family, that's first. <laughs> that, that, that's what Stanley Johnson was like, I think, to Boris. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah, yeah. What, what do you mean, you came second, Boris? No, well, we don't come second, we come first. 
Yeah. Did you, you'll come first next time, won't you? Who, who came first? Well, that was uh, blah blah. Well, tell blah blah blah. It's going to come second next time, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but the but the but the mental health thing is like the last couple of years, I've I've had to really fight to stay on a level because of the climate crisis. And you said something that I found quite profound, and it was the the whole. There's a lot of shouting, whether it's Extinction Rebellion or whether it's um, the other side of things. And you said we should just do more more of nothing. And actually, there were a number of reports during the lockdown about. You know the, the kind of restabilizing of certain ecosystems. Yeah, there was amazing pictures over, over China, <laughs> which like, like you know, it was all red um, before lockdown. It was all blue because people weren't using any energy. You mm. know. Um, but yeah, climate crisis. I actually sort of um, slightly put that into the. We used to have a column called Anxiety Culture in the in the Idler, and the, and the guy still does a website, Anxiety Culture, and it's a bit like Orwell says. You know, you're sort of you're you're the higher-ups keep you in this sort of sense of perpetual crisis uh, because then people are sort of easier to manage mm-hmm. so they're more likely to buy stuff more likely to go into work because they're a bit, a bit afraid um, and um, an example of that is terrorism so Dan and I used to talk about this a lot you know, when you look at the actual facts of terrorism the, the, the chance of being killed by a terrorist uh, when, you, when you look at the d- different causes of death I mean it doesn't even it's not even in the top thousand I mean it's just nowhere so the chances are nothing you know yeah. But yet, that was the, the um, excuse for a massive expansion of state control of state powers. Same happened with COVID. It was a massive excuse. It's retreating now, I know, and I probably got over-worried at the time. But with COVID, it was an excuse for an enormous expansion of like police powers, you know, government powers. The government loved it. It's like, this is great. Oh, Go- yeah. Governments tend to always want to have more control, so they, they did, and it was, it, was, it was brilliant. Boris was actually slightly a libertarian voice in all of that, which I quite liked not not a Boris fan but you know um, and uh, but, you know, we've been doing stuff about this in the Idler ever since we started like um, I've been working with a group called the um, New Economics Foundation I mean when I was 25 I was going to conferences about the four day week basic income and all this sort of thing so all, all that sort of basis was there and I met all these think tank people at Demos and New Economics Foundation um, I've written for books called like how to save no what was it called um uh, you know, things that won't cost the earth or something like that. It was a collection of essays about how to kind of um, respond to uh, pollution and, you know, look after the planet and be ecologically minded and stuff like that. Um, so that's just been a big... We, we, we had a piece that, you know, we've got on the cover of the idol, I'll show you um, uh, how to save the world without really trying. Mm. And that was about 15 years ago. That's a piece by a guy scientist kind of thing called Stephen Harding at um, Dartington College, arguing the same basic thing. You know, sort of idling is profoundly good, not only for you but for the planet because it doesn't hurt anything, it doesn't harm anything. The best thing to do is to do nothing. So then I get a bit sort of almost Rod Liddley um, because I'm thinking these fucking climate protesters, um, one flying around the world to climate change conferences, two. Absolutely non-stop on fucking YouTube, self-promotion, Twitter, you know. Like, you shouldn't be on Twitter and YouTube and uh, Facebook. Don't you realise that these are... Uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, computers in general, just because it's a phone, people don't realise that there's uh, a fan powered by electricity whirring in a data centre in a Welsh field, mm-hmm. you know, to power that. Yeah. And that needs electricity. And people are digging coal up to power your little self-promoting fucking shitty little tweets 
um, which is saying, you know, look at me, I'm trying to kind of, you know, solve the, the climate crisis. There's so much hypocrisy in it. And then I didn't like that guy, you know, we had them at, I mean, I'm kind of a fan of the movement um, in that I was a fan of Occupy, David Graeber. David Graeber was into, um, you know... Well, the principle of sound. The principle of sound. But yeah. when you meet some of these fuckers, um, you know, some of the people that I've seen involved in it, not naming any names, but talk about me, 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 you know. I'm now a sex guru dictator. I'm now a sex god, like, with a sort of, like, retinue of adoring young kind of hippie females, you know. And I used to be a bit of a loser, but now I've got, I've, you know, and also that they, they burn out terribly. They argue a lot with each other. Extinction Rebellion shouldn't be making children that fucking frightened. Mm -hmm. They keep saying the world's about to end, but it never does. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I saw Roger Hallam at a event like three or four years ago, about four or five years ago. Um, or at least I was, at, I was at the thing. And I love the creativity of Extinction Rebellion. They, they had screen printing and, you know, all that stuff. The carnivalesque atmosphere, I love all that. But when he says, you know, in fact he's saying, you know, it's too late. The world's exploded already. In fact, there's no point even going back to your car because, you know, like, and they keep saying it's just about to happen and it never fucking ends. And yeah. I said to this to my friend um, who's involved in it, oh, well, it's like a frog boiling, you, you don't realise, you know. And then I was like, actually, look, let's look at this in a wider perspective. It's an apocalyptic cult. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm the first in line to attack, um, you know, non-organic farming and all the rest of it. You know, I've been going on about this for forever. I was in the Green Party, you know, it's like, um, but um, you're sowing fear among young people when it may really well not be um, justified, you know. Um, the crisis, the emergency, don't you see you're just playing into the hands of the higher-ups again? Um, because the more frightened people are, you know, and fear's not a good motivation for social uh, interaction and change. No. We've got to do something, do something, do, do, it's do. Not because fight do something. I'm not just going to sit around doing nothing. The world's going to about to yeah. explode. You know, so, well, actually, if you did sit around doing nothing, it would slightly decrease the chances of the world exploding, you idiot, because, you know, um, all this activity um, is what's causing uh, pollution. And, you know, yeah. it's also very short-sighted because um, the, the evil people are just quietly investing in coal mines. I mean... You know, I thought coal mines had sort of disappeared because I'm so kind of naive. No, not at all. It's a massive, massive industry. In fact, it's growing. A lot of that coal is powering my life, you know. Look at this building. Yeah. Um, and so, unless you actually really are, like my friend Mark Boyle, who actually d does live on a, in a farm and he fishes and eat, grows his own vegetables and he doesn't have a computer or anything. Yeah. Okay, he can talk about it. But until you're at that stage, you know, it's just vanity as far as I'm concerned. A lot of it. Um... I'm not saying it's not a good message and it's good that people are talking about it and you know, mm -hmm. and Extinction Rebellion has been good as a sort of PR communication device. Yeah. But, you know, it does get a bit... I know they've changed their tactics recently. They just took a bit sort of like fear-mongering. And like for you to say, you know, um, your mental health was affected by the sort of climate crisis, you know, that makes you feel really sad because mine wasn't. I, I don't really care. Like, OK, maybe the world will explode tomorrow, but let's just kind of enjoy ourselves. Yeah. And it's not the right way to go about things. And then to, no. to communicate that to children yeah. is just irresponsible because you don't actually know that the world... It's just a prediction. And then there's another thing about it, which is... Sorry, I'm ranting there, but... Um, no, no, it's good. I do support Extinction Rebellion. You know, we have to <laughs> at the festival. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm broadly very supportive. We've had lots of pieces in the magazine. And, you know, I love the uh, situationist aspects of it, 1968. Um, the amazing creativity that sort of goes into it. But I sort of wonder whether... You know, 
they're actually unwittingly a part of the system because they make people afraid. Mm. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't, you know, we should all be confident and go out and enjoy our, enjoy our lives. Yeah. And as I said, and you know, not get children scared. I think that's well, yeah, because, wrong. Well, yeah, because the ne- when the next generation is broken and paranoid, that's when problems happen because there's no then the creativity is in there and, and, the, and the community and the collaboration that we will need to tackle the problem you know and I think that there's a brilliant piece um, a paper by um, Amy Isham Tim Jackson and they wrote about flow states and how they're great for the environment because you know this, we're talking about intimacy we're talking about conversation we're talking about physical activity oh really the same yeah. sort of idea really yeah, so, yeah exactly. idling is good it, for the and, planet and yeah. the arts yeah mm. and, it, and it's about coming together and actually creating communities around around things that are incredibly empowering for us as individuals mm. and as communities but are also great for the planet because it's not mm. about going to that big Arndale centre and buying a load of shit that you don't need yeah. and it's not about um, the rest of it that comes with consumerism that's promoted yeah you know, and I thought it was a yeah, wonderful, yeah, there's, 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 there's good messages in, um, you know, in climate, in extinction rebellion and stuff. Yeah. But it's a bit sort of, I guess, you know, I see, it's, it's, it's like Ecclesiastes. I can see a lot of vanity in it, and um, uh, you know, egos, self-promotion, um, and also because <laughs> I think about the history of the idol. We've been going for thirty years. Um, when we had our shop, there was a kind of. I got slightly involved in Occupy. Well, I gave a couple of talks at St Paul's, mm. and um, you know I thought that was quite a good movement, and I wrote about it very positively. Well, it gets disintegrated, um, and at the time they had things like the free university, and people did, did free courses and they squatted buildings, and I was like, God, the idol's just horribly commercial because we we charge twenty quid for someone to come and have a Latin lesson or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, but in actual fact, uh, a limited company charging fees to people to do things. I think it's good business. It's honest. Well, we all have to charge. We're in a capitalist system yeah, until that stops. Yeah. Well, even if we were in, weren't in a capitalist system, if we're in a pre-capitalist system, there's still trade. Yeah. You know, so I just make something and sell it. And I think that's quite an honest way of living. So we just make the magazine, we sell it, we put it on an event, we sell tickets. You don't have to come. You know, we used to get people saying, oh, like, as I said earlier, I can't afford to be an idler. You know, I've just been sacked from my job because I'm an idler, so I can't afford to come to London. I don't live in London, um, <laughs> and I can't afford the train. And sometimes you, you actually reach out and kind of go, well, look, you know, we actually need a volunteer for that event, and we can sort of pay for half your train ticket or something. And they still don't come. They just want to make a fuss. Um, but yeah, and it's like, actually, the idea is good because we haven't collapsed, you know. Uh, and, that's the, and also, these movements get infiltrated by um, spies. Mm. So, you know, Green and Common, I mean, there were policemen having babies with the Green and Common women mm-hmm. who were employed by the state to spy on them. You know, that's how easy it is for an, a movement to get turned over. Yeah. Um, Extinction Rebellion is going to be full of policemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and Occupy would it be. And they can easily sow discord, you know. Because they have to have a, like a, you know, sort of the anarchist meeting. It's like, um, okay, it's your turn to talk then, you know. So, well, you know, um, take me, uh, very interested to hear what, what Tom said about it. It's like, nothing's ever going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, it'd be quite easy for a, a sort of MI5 or a um, policeman to sort of infiltrate that. Yeah. Um, well, they've completely exploited it in terms of the protest bill, haven't they? Let's face it. They've, in terms of the. They've used the, the, they've used the kind of backlash against their methods. To, to get the bills through about protests. Oh yeah, them, well exactly, know. and then they, they, you know, you don't know what's happening. It could have been the, it could have been sort of policemen who were sort of encouraging people to throw paint at paintings, which they knew would, um, or like you know, sit on uh, you know, yeah. few trains, because they knew would lo- lose them 
uh, yeah, the, the Daily Mail readers like, oh, bloody posh idiots who went to yeah. Beedale's, you know, sort of. Yeah. Um, that, that could have been set up, I don't know, but like, but well, it's, a it's magazine, cool. like. It was Dan Keel who said um, to me, actually, about, he said that after his book, I Fought the Law, he said, you know, that he realised that everyone's so, so bound up, or so, so tied to towing the party line that it could, real change could only ever really come through business. And I tend, it, to a large degree, I do agree with him in that, in that regard. And actually, it's interesting, because the Idler actually, just, and this isn't any kind of ass-kissing, but actually, it, it has had a profound effect on me since coming across it through Dan, because I wasn't... Oh, you came across it through Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah through yeah, Dan. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, as, as a new dad who's living this kind of hectic lifestyle and trying to keep my passions going and everything else, actually... You know, it's like yesterday afternoon. It's ever since since coming across it and listening to you. Yeah, talk, you're guilt-free idling. I took the afternoon off, went to the yeah, park, yeah, and I came yeah. to my wife, and you know, yeah. and, I, and I've had Wednesdays. That's a great off. result. That's what we're after. Because I, I guess what people to like just to be able to do that without feeling guilty, because it's the guilt that holds us back. Where does the guilt come from? It, it's it's socially produced. It's not natural. Yeah. Because there are societies today around the world that don't feel guilty for not working. In fact, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. It's only us. So the guilt is not innate. Yeah. But I've been. I was more. I was more productive creatively since becoming a dad to new twins and having less time, because I mean that book was written largely on the toilet and yeah. on dog yeah. walks. Because you have to be efficient. It was the thing I wanted to retain that was just for me. Yeah. yeah. So on those walks, I'd find time yeah. and I sit down and write a really short, snappy anecdote mm. from childhood because I wanted to engage with that part of myself and playing out and everything else and just because I couldn't fully access it in this first blood and thunder the first few months of being a twin, How old are your children now? twin father. They've just turned, well, about to turn three next week. <laughs> um, yeah, it's such a nightmare. But, but, but particularly when you have two, that's when it gets really difficult. But no, I, I, oh, I, I have got twins. Well, at least you've had two all the way along. <laughs> when we had the first one, we're like, what's the, what's the yeah. big deal? What's everyone winking about? It's just fine. We just take him out like he's on our knees. We go yeah. out so it hasn't affected our life that but, much. But I vowed to And with two, you're like, yeah. <laughs> all the laundry, like tiny little socks lined up. Have you done the, um, have you used up the milk for the thing? I'm just going to put this in there. Yeah. Have you done the thing? Oh, I'm so tired. You're tired? What about me? I'm tired as well. Oh, God. But, I vowed, uh, but I vowed to carry that into, into when I did have more time. And actually not work more time because I had more time. It was like, okay, actually I've been incredibly productive in there. And, and you said it yourself about working very diligently. Very efficiently. I mean, when I wrote, I mean, actually looking back on it, it was a very, it was a very productive time when we had small children because, I, you know, my friends were like, God, you're just banging out these books. And I was like, it didn't feel like that because I was only doing four hours a day, four days a week. Um, but I did really, I was very, very efficient. So I sat down at nine. Um, we had to, you know, it's, quite, it's actually quite good that you have to get up early. So I had to get up early because they were either like babies changing, going to school, whatever. Um, but then at nine, like at nine, I'm like I've been awake for two hours. and I'm awake. And I, I can sit down, and also it feels like an amazing luxury to go back into my study and be on my own, do whatever I want for four hours. Mm. And I wrote so much. I was writing a chapter a week, and so I wrote the book in six months, you know, and then did the next book and the next book and the next book. And it was very, very. And I was doing the idea. It was very fertile creatively on four hours a day, mm. on probably yeah. Um, 16 to 20 hours a week, I'd say I was working. I mean, obviously, I was, in the evenings I was reading and thinking and chatting, and yeah. but we were going for walks, you know. Victoria will, if Victoria was here, she'd say, yes, and I was supporting you by doing all the, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, we had a lot of help in the house. We had a cleaner and, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I agree. And then it is possible to be, to do a lot of work in, like, yeah. two or three hours. I think the lesson, yeah. I think the lesson. Of this sort, obviously not, not, it, not, 
not a delivery man. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing. I think people have this tendency to look at their own circumstances and then get angry if, if, if you, they feel like it's challenging that. It's never, yeah, it's yeah. never that, is it? It's, no, about, no. it's about encouraging people to look at their own parameters, their own yeah. setup, and be true to themselves about fulfilment. Surely yeah. that's what it comes down no, to. That's the problem that we get. We're also, having a posh voice, you know, we're from, from, and the idler, it sounds like, oh, yeah, so that's a, po- that's a magazine for sort of posh people mm-hmm. who've got loads of money and, like, and just sit around doing nothing all day. It's like, no, it's not. It's an anarchist philosophy. Like, yeah. um, but I still, I still have that problem today. Yeah. Well, of course, and people are very, it, yeah. Yeah. people are very defensive, aren't they, about about what they'd like to. Well, have they think it's have. an and it's attack. Yeah, and it's like, oh well, oh well, how can you? Know, well, it's all right for you if you've got your yeah. private income. It's like, you know, oh well, you went to Cambridge, so it's all right for you. It's like, because <laughs> going to Cambridge doesn't mean you've got like a private income. No. You know, it's like most people in Cambridge don't have private income. It's like, they have yeah. to get jobs. You know, it's like. Oh, well, well, it's all right for you. It's easy for you. So, yeah. uh, I mean, part of it, it has been easy for me because my parents were journalists. So I was like trained to be a journalist from like when I was naught. Mm. Um, and I went to had an amazing education. So it has been a lot easier for me than for lots of other people, obviously, you know. But that still doesn't mean that, you know, I'm like, I, it's like uh, Debbie Harry, dreaming is free, idling is free. Yeah, and, and like, I don't, I don't subscribe to that either. The whole label thing and the class thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. There are, there are definitely things that you have to work with from whatever class you're from. Of course, mm-hmm. there are advantages and disadvantages to all of it. Mm. The person who's had privilege might not have had to work as hard as, as let's say, a, a James Brown, perhaps, who, who was from a working class background and, and just followed his music and, and did it through hard work. Yeah. But, but there's neither's right or wrong. You just work with what you have. No, and so some of these um, uh, rich posh families. I mean, they're, they're absolutely appalling dysfunctional. I mean, just the, the sort of lack of love in some of them that I've seen, you know, just absolutely awful. So it's more important to have, um, you know, like Jarvis Cocker had that very, very supportive mum. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems quite common in creative people, I've noticed. It's just a theory, but um, there's often a dead dad or a missing dad, or a, yeah. but a very, very strong uh, mum. John Lennon, <laughs> Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, you know, um, uh, uh, M&M. M&M. Is that the same with Eminem? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, kind of absent father and a and, 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 and Gallagher's. Yeah. Jarvis Cocker. Um, I mean, obviously not all of them, but it, it's quite a sort of common thing. I don't know why. It just makes them very sort of responsible or something like mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah. Um, but, they're, but, they're, but, you know, Jarvis Cocker said his mother was very, very encouraging always. And he had... It didn't look on paper like it was going to be a good shelter, but it was. It was really happy. Yeah. Um, because she was... I think she was quite bohemian and creative herself. His dad had been a photographer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Paul McCartney's dad just seemed to be sort of quite encouraging. <laughs> yeah. Aunt Mimi was not encouraging, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jarvis is somebody I'd love to interview for the show. He's a, yeah, I think he's fantastic. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I've kept you long enough. There is. Um, oh, Damien Hurst, mo- uh, dad, you know, well, his, his, um, he was illegitimate. Uh, his mother um, got married to like the boy next door because mm. she had an affair with um, on the Isle of Wight when she was working as a sort of holiday job in a hotel with a quite a dashing young creative artist photographer. Mm. Uh, that's weird. Who, who just <laughs> vanished? And then she got married to her husband, who, who then looked after Damien as his own. Yeah. Um, wow. But his other, his two, his brother and sister are, you know, the pure offspring of those two. Um, so his mother was always like, I don't know where he gets it from. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. But there was a weird thing about like he might have kind of got some genes from this small creative dad. Yeah. You know. <laughs>
There's one more thing that I want to ask you, sir. I've kept you long enough and I appreciate the time. But um, artificial intelligence, I'm intrigued by it at the moment. And I think in some ways it's like, you know, could it be this? And it won't be because of the same reasons that we just talked about and the elite and keeping people scared. But, you know, with everything, all the power there and the way it's probably going to grow, you know, it could be this kind of the good side of automation where it freezes up to do everything that the idler. Could it be this advent for, you know, more freedom in society? I mean, I don't know. What do you think about it? Um, I, well, uh, I've thought about this a lot. If you look at machines and the history of machines, um, you know, in ancient Greek poetry, they're writing poems in praise of the uh, watermill. He said the watermill is saving all this. You know, no longer do we need slaves, you know, who are the workers. Um, now we have these incredible watermill. Uh, we can just walk, sit back and let the watermill do all the work. Um, well, no, you can't because someone's got to make the watermill, build the watermill. Someone's got to look after the watermill when it goes wrong. Um, and, and you know, there, there have been. John Locke wrote about it. There have been machine, you know, labour-saving inventions, so-called, uh, since the dawn of time, and they've become more sophisticated. Obviously, <laughs> there was a big step forward in, um, you know, there was mechanisation before industrial revolution, clockwork and stuff. But there was a, obviously a massive acceleration in technology in late 18th century period and early 19th century, um, and these incredible machines that could do the work of 12 knitters, you know. Um, and with just one knitter had to look after the machine. Um, so what actually happens? The working day gets longer. Um, I mean, it's true that there were millions and millions of people left the UK, left England um, in the 19th century, for mainly America, but also Australia, you know, because they were being thrown out of work. Um, but we still have a big population. We still have a sort of 3% uh, unemployment rate. Um, most people are actually working. Um, so. It's a fantasy, you know, Oscar Wilde wrote about it, I've had interviews about it, it was like, yeah, imagine a world where we could sit back and let the machines do all the work. It's like, you start to think through it, and it's, it's, that's not going to happen. It's like self-driving cars, it's just complete bullshit. You know, we had a piece in the article a few years ago by a transport guy, and it's like, this, this isn't going to happen, you can't have a self-driving car. No one would insure it from one thing. It's impossible. Um, I don't think they'll ever happen, unless they're... You can have a self-driving car in, in an environment that's designed especially with self-driving cars in mind. Yeah. Um, yes, and there's lots of self-driving technology. Obviously, a car can drive itself to some extent, you know. But for, for a car to, you know, come down here, be into this lane, you know, um, ask to be let into the <laughs> um, <laughs> courtyard, uh, which space could I go into? Oh, you can use one. Oh, no, no, not one, number two. Okay, thanks. You know, there's so much communication between drivers, and a lot of it's almost... Um, uh, telepathic, mm. you know. Um, where, does, where, does, where does a self-driving car go at night? Anyone? Someone's got to build a self-driving yeah, car. Yeah. You know, and actually, whole new industries open up. It's like the fluffers lament. Yeah. Um, the fluffers are no longer wanted. Um, in porn movies, because you have Viagra. Um, <laughs> so the fl- have you heard that uh, Mary Lackling Young's? Uh, it's like a, it's like it's done in the style of a Ewan McCall folk song. Oh, we used to drink fine champagne, um, and you know it was about how the, the floppers used to have this great life, and they used to kind of make a lot of money. And then uh, uh, we, like, you know, uh, 
and then uh, the little blue pill came and took away. <laughs> you know, so it's about Viagra, that little blue pill taking away that yeah. fluffers kind of purpose in life. So the, but the fluffers have to find, no, they do find work elsewhere and um, uh, not such good work. I mean, that's one of the criticisms of the, that the Luddites had um, because it's boring, it's inaccurate, you know. Mm. And I think artificial intelligence is the latest sort of in line for that. And um, it's just going to be commercialised like the internet. I don't know, I don't know what will happen to it. My son's been showing me chat GPT. Mm. You know, it's quite clever. It's like a, I don't know, at the moment it's like a sort of party game. You know, it's like, oh, he can write an essay. Actually, that's quite good. I think it would mean that teachers have to be more careful with their teaching. Because um, each teacher will type in the essay title into ChatGPT. So it'll be fairly obvious if someone's copied it. You know, and you might have a return to more exams, more uh, conversational style of teaching where you, you can't cheat using ChatGPT mm. and stuff like that. I mean, I know Microsoft has just invested $10 billion in it. So obviously it's going to have some kind of practical application they're going to sell ads on it like it's going to be the next Google to be a sort of yeah. more advanced search there's a lot of fear in my industry at the moment about the illustrators you know and the, the it's such, I, I, don't, I wouldn't worry if I was them because I mean it can't I mean, it's like that thing it tried to do Nick Cave's it, the poetry I, I tried the poetry on it it's so shit yeah you can't write it hasn't got a soul you know no, that's the basic problem that I think people forget is that there's a soul like my dad was saying that we all have souls you know yeah, we're soul. We have a consciousness, and a machine can never have a soul. It's programmed by other machines. You know, um, uh, Byron's daughter wrote a piece about it about the calculating machine, because she like partly invented the computer with Babbage and other people like that. And you said the ca- and it's, it's an incredible thing, the calculating machine. But the calculating machine will never be able to sort of think for itself. Yeah. Um, an artificial intelligence doesn't think for itself. It's, it's an amazing trick of uh, you know software. And this, this, all this bullshit about like computer processing speeds are going to double every year. And um, I mean, I've been, I was a fan of this when I was like ten, five. Yeah. Asimov, robots. It's like in two thousand eighteen. It's sci-fi. Yeah. It's not going to happen because yes, they will get more and more advanced. I've never seen a robot. No. Have you ever seen one? Never no. seen one. I've never seen a self-driving car. Never seen a. Ro- in, five years ago, I had this long row with a friend in a pub. And he said, oh, well, in, of course, in five years, none of these staff will be here. And I was like, what are you talking about? There'll be robots. It's like, what do you mean, Sally? There'll be robots serving us. It's like, what, you think the robot's going to, like, wheel out of that little room, come around here, dodge past the people? Yeah. Like, say, oh, sorry, mate, like, take down, give your a class. And she said, yes, they will. And that was five years ago. And I was going to bet with her in five It's like, absolute bullshit. Yeah. There aren't any robots. <laughs> I mean, of course, there are robots in factories, and you know, yeah, I, but I know that. But they're not going to take away our I jobs. I mean, this, you know, there's stories in this about you know, just used condoms and you know, bike with no wheels. It's like it's not coming up with that. It might, it might be able to replicate the illustration style if it's just a drawing of a bike. They can't, they can't but it can't be the way I can do it. And it's not, yeah, exactly. No. It's crazy. Him that's Again, that's all totally exaggerated. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's going to become a sort of very powerful technology like Google. Yeah, um, and you have to be aware of it. In ways that we don't quite understand yet. And Google, you know, and, uh, uh, the internet did change things a lot, as you said at the beginning. You know, yeah. the, um, it wasn't a industrial revolution. It has changed things. Mm-hmm. Largely for the worse. It's like, it's made the, you know, we should be moving towards all civilised societies. I sort of keep saying this, sorry to repeat it, but um, we should be moving towards more leisure in the day, not less. That means you're stupid. So if you work hard, you're stupid. If you, if you work out uh, a, a a civilized working pattern where you're, you're, you know, more or less enjoying your work. You're not overworking. You have plenty of time for other stuff. That makes you intelligent. You know, 
if you're working 20 hours, uh, you know, 12 hours a day, whatever, six days a week to, to earn money, to me, that means you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. um, the clever people are the ones who have sort of worked out that uh, a happy life does not involve overworking. Um, so, and the machines, you know, give, it's like uh, there was an Uber Eats ripped us off. Um, there was an ad for Uber Eats, um, do less, uh, spend more time doing the things you love. Well, this is what, how the technology companies always advertise themselves, spend more time doing it. And there's usually a picture of a dad with a baby kind of laughing, like, you know, because he's like got more time to spend with the baby because of this amazing piece of technology that saved him time. But some weird paradox means that it doesn't save him time because it means you have more, you try and get more done. Yeah. Um, Wastes his time. Sorry? <laughs> Waste his time. <laughs> well, it's, it's like even like, um, uh, I get into trouble about this as well, but I mean, obviously we have a washing machine, but I just want to think back to, or you see sort of Indian washing systems. There's a large gang of people uh, washing by hand outdoors, chatting, gossiping, talking. You know, it's not lonely. Um, they're making a living. Well, it's true. Look at TV shows like The Walking Dead, and you've got those. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I know obviously it's complete fantasy, but you know you've got this apocalyptic world, and yet you've got these little communities, like you say, where they're they're they're, they're looking for you know they're harvesting the food and whatever. It's, and it's all values again, isn't it? It's, it's, it's community around social activity. And, yeah, uh, no, that, that should be more. All those things should be sort of more valued. Um, yeah. I don't know whether it's things are getting better or worse. Really, it's sort of. Mm. You know, I've been banging away at this since 1993. Um, and in some ways it's got better, but in other ways it's got worse. And, and people seem to be kind of more chasing the money. But then, I don't know, it's like my kids, it's difficult for them. I mean, how are they going to buy a flat in London? It's impossible. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's hard work. It's, yeah, like you say, it is impossible, yeah. So, oh, well, we'll see where it goes anyway. Yeah, anyway, cool. come back to it. I'll, I'll show you a couple of old Idler magazines. Brilliant. Thank you so much to Tom Hodgkinson for taking the time out of editing Idler magazine to chat today. I hope you enjoyed that one. It was a strong, long conversation and a lot to work through. I certainly enjoyed it. I love Idler. I'm still a subscriber and it's a great tonic. I've learned so much. I've come across so many interesting people, some of which have become guests on this show through Idler. So I hope you enjoyed that one. It was their 30th anniversary last year, which is uh, quite the achievement. Uh, some great shows coming up uh, before we go actually I just wanted to read this which was uh, brilliant I thought this is from the Idler website idler.co.uk and it's the how to be idle and manifesto the religion of industry has turned human beings into work robots the imposition of work discipline on freewheeling dreamers enslaves us all joy and wisdom have been replaced by work and worry we must defend our right to be lazy it is our idleness that we become who we are it is when lazy that we achieve a self-mastery. Jobs rob our time. Productivity and progress have led to anxiety and unease. Technology imprisons all it promises to liberate. Careers are phantasms. Money is mind-forged. We can create our own paradise. Nothing must be done. With freedom comes responsibility. Stay in bed. Be good to yourself. Inaction is the wellspring of creation. Art, people, life, bread, bacon, beer... Live first, work later, time is not money. Stop spending, quit your job, study the art of living, live slow, die old. Embrace nothing, know nothing, do nothing, be idle.
<laughs> I'm going to leave you with that and a thank you to the sponsor of the show, Illustration X. Go check out their global range of illustrators and animators at illustrationx.com. Thank you for listening. If you do want to further support the show, and I really hope you do, please leave me a review on your preferred podcast platform, subscribe, and tell a friend. Thank you, guys. Take care. Be creative. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.